we've already heard about the mountains and seeing the mountains and um, Psalm 125 brings us back again. You may remember Psalm 121. In fact, that was the song that we sang, the, the third choir piece that Thomas made us sing together up here. Uh, I lift my eyes up to... I didn't even know that was coming. He, uh, I knew the other part, but uh, seriously, the, I lift my eyes to the mountains. That was Psalm 121. And, and now in Psalm 125, the psalmist comes back to this theme again. They surround us, reminding us God's protection and God's care. And I was thinking in my, um, and you know, forgive me, but I'm going to talk about my own life and background a little bit here again, and realized how many times I have lived in places surrounded by mountains. This obviously is not one of those times. But um, as a child, I grew up in the coast range of California in the eastern suburbs of San Francisco. And I grew up in the shadow of Mount Diablo. And how many from the Bay Area and go, oh, I recognize that, or you've been to the Bay Area before. It looks very familiar, doesn't it? Uh, the, the South Peak is the higher one. You can drive to the top of that one. There's an observation deck up there and kind of the mysterious uh, North Peak that you can only hike to. Um, but that was always there as a child. You always, I always knew my directions because Mount Diablo was always uh, to the east. In Chicago, you always know the lakes to the, the east too, except you can't see the lake. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but uh, So I always grew up in the shadow of, of that, that mountain. It was always, always there. Family vacations, we went on a vacation every year and we never left the state of California, or rarely did, except to come see our grandparents in this flat place called Illinois. But um, we often went to Yosemite, Yosemite Valley, enjoyed climbing, hiking, backpacking, even back in the 50s when it wasn't the coolest thing to do, uh, we did it. My first year as a college, I went to the University of California in Santa Barbara, and Santa Barbara has the ocean on one side and then the Santa Ynez Mountains on the other side. And so again, surrounded by mountains. After finishing uh, my education here in Chicago at Wheaton College, I moved for a whole year and lived in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. God actually called me to be a ski pastor for a year in Jackson. The things you only dream about. I actually got to do that. And I, I looked, I saw these every day and lived just down, uh, just a little bit to the left. I lived in Teton Village where the ski area is. And actually Jackson Hole uh, sounds like it would be a horrible place. Like where do you, I live in a hole. Well, actually a hole was what the early trappers called a, a deep valley because the other side, where, behind where the photographer is, is another range of mountains called the Grovant Range. And the Sleeping Indian is over there if you've ever been in Jackson Hole. So again, surrounded by mountains for that year. At the end of that year, during that year, Meg and I were engaged. We came back here. We were married in Oak Brook. Within two weeks, we moved to Denver. And we spent six years in Denver where I went to seminary and we began work in the Covenant Church there 30-some years ago. And in Denver, uh, the front range is always there, always to the west. You always knew west in Denver because the mountains were always to the west. We left Denver, and there was an 11-year break of wandering around the Midwest. We even made it as far as the East Coast for five years. But then God called us back to the West, and we were 17 years in Tucson, Arizona. These are the Catalinas, which are the largest mountain range right behind Tucson. But there's five ranges of mountains around Tucson. There's the Catalinas, and then if you went over this way, you'd see the Rincon Mountains. And then if you went this way to the south of Tucson is, are the Santa Ritas, and the highest point is Mount Wrightson. And then you come over to the western side, and there's the Tucson Mountains. And come all the way around over here to the north side and there's the Tortolita Mountains. Who speaks Spanish? Who speaks Spanish? The Tortolitas, what does it mean? The little turtles. The little turtle mountains are to the north. Yeah. Sorry to trip up you Spanish speakers. But anyway, is that right? Tortolita? Espanol? Tortuga? Tortolita. Tortuga. But Tortolita, little, little turtle, right? Maybe they don't call them that in Colombia. Anyway, Tucson surrounded by mountains. Let's move on and I'll get back to English, my only language. <laughs> I am a, I'm a solid monolingual person. Anyway, um, but seriously, those years in Tucson was when I fell in love with Psalm 125. 
And when we decided to do this series, I thought, oh, I can't wait to get to Psalm 125. Because this became really a psalm to me and a, a reassurance to me. Because I would look around me, I would look from my office or on the hill where our church was, or I'd be even down in the middle of the city, and I would be able to say, as the mountains surround Tucson, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. I could resonate with the psalmist who looked around the mountains surrounding Jerusalem and said, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. Mountains, solid, secure, immovable, enduring, encircling, and protecting Mountains, solid, as Julie said, there for millions of years, unchanging. The Holy Land is a mountainous land. And the mountains there now look almost exactly the way they did in the time of Jesus, in the time of David, all the way back to the time of Abraham and before. The Holy Land is a mountainous land, so this geological reference and metaphor for God was an easy one for the psalmist to go to. They were a symbol of strength for those who trust God, as we read here. And then they became a symbol of security and endurance for those same people as they looked to God for protection, as they looked to God to give them a confidence and a sense of security in a world that often pushes them and pushes us towards insecurity. Mountains that we look to, or a God we look to, to give us protection, confidence, and security, even in the face of all that would try to pull us away from that in God. The journey with God then can seem like a precarious journey. Sometimes when we're left on our own, we think we have to figure out this Christian walk on our own and we slip and fall and wonder if we've fallen too far away and and, and, and does God still love me and is he still there? God reminds us, no, I'm much bigger than that. Your journey is not as precarious as you sometimes think it is because I surround you and I give you a lot of room to go up and down in and out, says God. So you can understand then why the Jewish pilgrims on their way to the temple in Jerusalem would want to sing this psalm and all that it affirms. If you're just with us today and haven't been here, we are in a series called On the Way. We're studying the Psalms of Ascent that go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, which will be the Sunday right before Christmas. We're discovering that these are most likely psalms or songs that the Jewish pilgrims, when they would go to different festivals in Jerusalem, would sing to each other and sing as they went up to the temple. This is one that they went up to the temple and they sang it to reassure themselves of God's protecting power over them. Each week a different person is doing a piece of art, as you saw Julie or heard Julie describe hers today. And we're lying, they, go, they start at 120 this end and go that way. When we get to 127, we'll jump over to this wall here. The candles on the table are sort of ascending as well to remind us of this kind of going up, going up to the house of God. And what we've been saying about this is that as these psalms carry the Hebrew pilgrims up to Jerusalem so they can take us on a journey towards the heart of God. We are on the way as followers of Christ, and that's where we took this term, this title, on the way, as these psalms take us nearer to the heart of God. Well, today the mountains of Psalm 125 speak not of the precariousness of this journey that we're on, but rather of a solidity and security on the journey. God is our constant strength even when we're up and down. God is our constant strength. So that's what we're going to look at here in these few verses. First of all, we want to see what it says about how God protects us and, and says that in God we will not be moved. And yet God has promises here too because the reality is we are moved sometimes. There are things in lives, in our life that move us as well. 
God, protect us. We will not be moved. God promises even when we are moved. And at the last few words, remind us of the peace of God, the shalom of God, we're all as well. God protects. I love how this metaphor of the mountains works two ways in the first couple verses. First, it's the believer is like a mountain. The one who trusts is like a mountain. And then God is like the mountains who surrounds his people. But the common theme here is this solidity, this security that ties them together. It's all from God. Even the one that trusts in God is is like that because God has enabled them to do that. But first of all, we can actually be like these enduring mountains. We can be like the enduring mountains because we trust in God's protection. It says those who trust in verse 1. And those are the same people that are mentioned in verse 2. The righteous in verse 3 and the good people in verse 4. It's the people of God. It's the children of Israel then and it's us now. It's the followers of Jesus now. Those who trust. Those who have been declared righteous in Christ. Those who have been made good through the grace of Christ. It's us when we accept the offer of God's salvation, when we put our trust in Christ to save us, and when we begin to follow him, then we are like the enduring mountains that surround us. We commit ourselves to the one true God, and we become secure in him, not just because we decided to, but because he gives that as his gift. We become secure in him. And we aren't like just any old mountain. We are like Mount Zion. Who lives at Mount Zion? God. <laughs> we, live, we are like Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, that location where the people focused on the presence of God and we are strong and secure in him. Those who trust in God are strong, not through their own efforts of trying hard to please God, but they're strong because their strength is not their own, but rather a strength that God gives. And verse 1 says that we endure, we are not shaken, we hang in there. Even when it feels a little shaky in our own little world, God is bigger and he is with us. We are like enduring mountains, trusting in God's protection. But then God is like the surrounding mountains as well. And we have God's secure love and care. Just like in some of the places where I have lived, surrounded by mountains, Jerusalem sits literally among the mountains which in the ancient days uh, provided a measure of, literally, of protection against enemies for them. Plus, simply that strong, solid, enduring presence of the mountains made them feel a, a safety in a way. That, a, that enduring presence of the mountains can make us feel small also in, a, in another way. When you stand at the base of some of those mountains that I showed pictures of, or the, the mountains that the dolls saw on vacation this summer, we can feel kind of small. We can feel small and insignificant, or we can feel small and we can look to the God who is big, the God who made those mountains. We can become grateful for a God who is big and big enough to protect us and to care for us and to keep us secure. Instead of overpowering us, this God, this big God, is big enough to hold us. He has provided the security. We don't need to constantly be vigilant in protecting ourselves. Wondering if around any bush coming up ahead of us is something that's going to pull us from the path. No, God is protecting us. Eugene Peterson in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, says this. The emphasis of Psalm 125 is not on the precariousness of the Christian life, but its solidity. We don't have to always be looking over our shoulder lest evil overtake us unaware. We don't always have to keep our eyes on our footsteps lest we slip inadvertently on a temptation. God is at our side behind and before. It's not as precarious as we think sometimes because God holds us. He is behind and before. That's from Psalm 139. 
When I was Googling around for these mountain pictures and looking at images of Mount Diablo, I, I came, across, uh, came across this one. This is, um, this is Rock City in, uh, in uh, Mount Diablo. Uh, this, these are mountains, they're sandstone, and uh, these are caves that have been carved out for years and years. And when I saw them, I just, there, was a, there was a flood of childhood memories. Because we often would go up to Mount Diablo with the Cub Scouts, a bunch of squirrely little kids running around the mountains, and my dad would often take, my dad loved the mountains. He grew up here in Western Springs, so when he moved to California, he just fell in love with the mountains. We were up on Diablo a lot. But I, I, saw, these, uh, I saw these caves, and uh, I suddenly remember playing there as a little kid. Somewhere in a box of Kodachrome slides in my brother's attic are some pictures of little Scott Gillen running around in these very same caves. I saw one cave, and I went, I, I totally remember that cave. I totally remember that cave. This is 50, 60 years ago. And then I thought, when I saw these images on Google, I thought, you know, they haven't changed a bit. The sandstone's worn down a little bit, but not much that you could really see. And it reminded me back to the psalm where we speak of the unchanging nature of God. Those mountains that have been around for millions of years. In the final part of verse 2 that says, God surrounds his people. God surrounds his people both now and forevermore. The unchanging power of God to hold us, to hold us. Like surrounding mountains, God's love is secure and God gives us his care. God protects us. We will not be moved. But God also gives us promises because sometimes we are moved within us, aren't we? It all sounds wonderful except for the fact that we do get anxious. We do get fearful. We do doubt. Life does throw incredible things our way that can really pull us back. Peterson has a great chapter in here, you, or this part of this chapter about backsliders. Some of you grew up in traditions where you looked down your nose at somebody who wasn't in church very often, and they were the big B, weren't they? The backslider. Because there's times that we do slide away. Things pull at us, and things make it possible for us to slip and fall. We still become, even when we're growing in Christ and we're faithful in our attendance and we're, and we're learning from God, we still have certain times when we become uncertain and insecure rather than solid and secure. We go up and down. We go up and down in our walk of faith. You know, the people of Israel have some serious ups and downs in their history too. It's all in the book, that book that you have right there in front of you, the Bible. They're their incredible high points of their life. When God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea and out into the wilderness, the Exodus was a high point in their life. It was a high point in their life when they began to conquer the land that had been promised to them that was inhabited by others, and they marched around Jericho. They fit the battle at Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, a high point. But in between was a serious down of 40 years of wandering. A trip that should have taken a few weeks took them 40 years because of their insecurity and their doubting, the precarious walk of their faith. And yet God still held them even in those 40 years. And that's the the good news of the story of God. And even after they got to the promised land, they had the high there, but then only a few chapters later we find them being tempted by the pagan Canaanite rituals and even orgies on the high places. There was the high moment in the upper room with Jesus when the disciples were connected. They were getting it now. They were there. They were communion with him. And yet only the next day, they were running away and denying that they ever knew him. But God holds his people. The disciples were still his people. 
even when we're moved, even when we feel that our security is threatened. We may be moved by feelings, but we are held by the truth. Moved by our feelings. Feelings and depression can, and feelings of doubt can, can move us. They can move us downward. We may feel full of faith and joy one day and empty and questioning the very next day. We are moved. We are moved by sadness. We are moved by joy. We are moved by success. We are moved by failure. But we are still God's people. He is still with us even when we don't feel close to him. We are held by the facts of God, not just by the feelings of our own hearts. We are held by the facts of God. We are held by the truth about who he is. On on the way, on this journey, we learn to live not just by our feelings about God, but we learn to live by the truth and the reality of this one who holds us and keeps us. Eugene Peterson talks about how our feelings are important. God wired us with emotions, and they, they, they give a dimension to life that we could not live without. They have an important place in our life. But he goes on and says, but my security comes from who God is, not how I feel about him. And then he says this, discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God, not by what I feel about him, myself or my neighbors. The the image here that announces the dependable, unchanging, safe, secure existence of God's people comes from geology, not psychology. (laughs) We may be moved by our feelings, but God holds us by the truth. Also here, we might be moved by by pain and and suffering and, and trials. But the message in this is that the worst doesn't last. Bad things still happen to us. Real physical pain, deep emotional heartache, persecution for some of our sisters and brothers around the world, and even in this country in some corners. Evil influences weigh on us individually. We feel a tug of uh, away from Christ, the power of, of dark kinds of things. But evil influences also make this a very scary world to live in, especially right now. With wars and disease and violence on increase, it makes keeping up with the news kind of a scary thing to do. And it can shake us and it can move us. Things out there, but particularly things in here that cause me pain and suffering, shake me and move me. But this ancient language of verse 3 is so reassuring when we unpack it. We don't have many rulers that carry scepters now, but if you can kind of relate to the scepter here in verse 3, it says, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. Well, the wicked here is, is those who do evil. The evil power of Satan or, or, or a specific enemy, we're not really sure. It's likely a real foe that the psalmist is referring to, one that's hurting them right now. It could be that this psalm was written during the time of exile when they had been defeated in Jerusalem and carried off to Babylon. It could be when that was all happening. The scepter of the wicked was controlling them. The the scepter was this wand, the staff or whatever thing that carried power and spoke of power. It could be that this was written during Nehemiah's day when they, some of them got to go back to Jerusalem and, and Nehemiah got permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and yet they faced constant opposition and ridicule. It could be that the, that was the scepter of the wicked. 
But the scepter, the staff, the rod that carried by one in power, in the case, the wicked power, he says, will not remain. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land. This word remain is the same word that we use for rest or abide, which means permanently. It's not going to be there forever. It will not abide over the promised land. The land allotted to the righteous is the promised land. Do you get it? He's saying it's going to happen for a bit, but it will not stay there. The worst will not last. And if it did, then even the righteous would be pulled away and pulled towards evil, it says here. But the psalm says they won't be pulled away because the scepter of the righteous, this power, will not remain in the land forever. The message here is that evil is always temporary. Evil will win some battles and winning battles even now, but evil will not win the final day. Evil will not win the final victory. We are moved by pain and suffering in this life, but the worst does not last. It will not come to rest permanently. We are still held by God. We have that promise. Now, verse 5 is kind of a tough one. It's one of those you kind of go, well, we don't really have time to deal with this one because it talks about losing your salvation. But, but, or at least that's what it sounds like. Look at verse 5. It says, um, those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Banish. There's one of those old Bible words. You know, banish. Banished. And here I really believe what's moving us here is that we can be moved away. Moved away from that security. But I believe the psalmist says it's really only by our own choice. The question here is, how secure is our salvation? Can we lose our salvation and be banished away from the presence of God forever? How true is the statement, once saved, always saved? Not pray to prayer once, you're okay, but really saved, really experiencing salvation. Is that true? Well, I believe it has to be true. We, we, we need a sense of the security of our salvation, that, that if we've come to know Christ, then, then he will never ever send us away. But Peterson puts it this way. He says, it, it would seem that if God will not force us to faith in the first place, he will not keep us against our will. In other words, he never forces us to believe. But if we choose to leave, he doesn't stop us. Scripture and history give evidence of those who have, in fact, defected. I talked about at the upper room how he held all the disciples and all of them stuck with him. Except for one. Judas made a choice to defect, to align himself with the evildoers, and in a sense was banished. There's other places in Scripture where we see that. And the words here of the psalmist are that they have turned to crooked ways and are banished. And for some of us, that might cause us to be fearful at times when life ain't going so great and we maybe don't feel like we've been living the most consistent Christian life and we can actually ask ourselves, can it happen to me? I think simply in asking that question, the answer would be no. (laughs) If you're worried about it, no. If if you think you've committed the unforgivable sin and you're worried about it, then you haven't. (laughs) Does that make sense? But there is a choice to, to move away, to move away. I know I've quoted a lot from him today, but he says it better than me, and I'm not a plagiarist, so I'm just going to read it instead of telling you my words, okay? It is, if it is possible to defect, how do I know that I won't? Or even worse, that I haven't. 
How do I know that I have not already lost faith, especially during those times when I am depressed or have one calamity piled on me one after another? Such insinuated insecurities need to be confronted directly and plainly. It is not possible to drift unconsciously from faith to perdition. That perdition, which is sin. It is not possible to drift unconsciously from faith to perdition. We wander like lost sheep, true, but he is a faithful shepherd who pursues us relentlessly. We have our ups and downs, zealously believing one day and gloomily doubting the next, but he is faithful. We break our promises, but he doesn't break his. Discipleship is not a contract in which if we break our part of the agreement, he is free to break his. It is a covenant in which he establishes the conditions and guarantees the results. Certainly, you may quit if you wish. You may say no to God. It's a free faith. (laughs) Kind of like a free country. (laughs) You may choose the crooked way. He will not keep you against your will. But it's not the kind of thing you fall into by chance or slip into by ignorance. Defection requires a deliberate, sustained, determined act of rejection. Get that? It's not going to sneak up on us and go, oh my goodness, I think I just lost my salvation. (laughs) It's a deliberate decision. Those who choose to turn to the crooked way. Though that's a little gloomy way to end the psalm here. It's a reassurance. It's another way of the psalmist saying, he is keeping you. (laughs) He is holding you, even in the ups and downs. Like the mountains surrounding Jerusalem, God still holds us. God still keeps us. We can still cling to the promises of God even when we're moved. But the psalm isn't quite over. There's four more words. Peace be on Israel. God's peace. God's peace is shalom peace. That's not just a the war is over peace. That's a Everything's fitting. Shalom means all is well. Everything is as it should be. Peace be on Israel. Even when things are up and down, and they were, and they will be, and they are. Peace be on Israel. Shalom. A spiritual practice that I really just rediscovered recently, it's been part of my prayer life before, but had kind of drifted away, is the concept of a breath prayer. A breath prayer is just a simple prayer that you repeat that's sometimes not more than five or six words. A dozen is almost too many. And it's just a prayer you repeat as you breathe as sort of a a, a way to keep ourselves focused and centered. It's not a mantra like an Eastern thing where you kind of get mindless. No, it's something that draws you and keeps you connected in your faith to Jesus. Sometimes a breath prayer is helpful because sometimes when we go to prayer, we... Maybe I'm the only one, but sometimes you kind of go, I'm not sure how to put together the sentences today to talk to God. I have things on my heart. I have things I need to talk to him about. I have people I need to pray for. I just, sometimes, I don't know, you know, God is not up there checking our grammar. He's listening to our heart. Sometimes we're silent before God. Who doesn't love that part of Romans 8 where it says the Spirit communicates our grumblings? I just have to grumble before God sometimes. But a breath prayer is that prayer that I believe sometimes God gives us just to keep us kind of connected. Either in a troubled time or a time when we really don't know how to pray. We just need to stay close. For years I used to use a, a one called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus, Son of David, 
or Son of God. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can do that as you breathe it. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a prayer of confession and it's a reminder of who he is. And it can just kind of remind us. Some people know the Catholic priest, uh, Brennan Manning, who uh, wrote wonderful books about Abba Father. And a breath prayer that Manning uh, suggests is one where you just say Abba, which is kind of like a, a daddy, a closeness to God. Abba, I belong to you. Abba Father, I belong to you. Several weeks ago, I was doing some reading about spiritual practices. We're working on some things at the Board of Spiritual Life, and I came across the breath prayer idea again, and one came back to me that I'd prayed before. It's only three simple words. Peace of Christ. <laughs> Peace of Christ. That's been my breath prayer recently. Of just uh, in the midst of anything going on, it's this peace of Christ. And that's not a prayer that just, I will be okay. It's not just a prayer that I'll feel peaceful even though the world is a mess. It's not just me wanting to feel safe, secure, and emotionally stable. <laughs> it's a reminder that in Christ there is this shalom peace. That even if things are troubling my heart, even if there are relationships that are strained, even if there are decisions that have to be made, even if there's things that are discouraging me, peace of Christ says all as well. All is safe and secure even when I'm not feeling it inside or the outside. And this week as I was working with Psalm 125, it came and, and met my breath prayer in this place of being solid and secure. No matter what threatens that peace, this place of safety and security in Christ. The mountains of Psalm 125 Speak then not of this precarious journey where we might slip and fall and lose it all in a day. But it speaks of a God who holds us. It speaks of a God who has our constant strength, even in our ups and downs. A God who allows us to live in peace. Peace in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what a gift these psalms are. And I thank you just for my, what a privilege to be able to work with these words and these thoughts and to hear you speak through it, Lord God. And so I pray for my sisters and my brothers today that have patiently listened to me these last several minutes. Lord, that you would open their hearts and minds to what you're saying to the Psalms as well. Draw us deep to that place of our security in you, Lord, even when life feels really shaky and weird. Give each of us, Lord, the gift of a prayer that we can pray simply as we breathe that keeps us connected to the strength and the security of who you are and who we are in you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.